Okay, go ahead and flip to Romans 13, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 14. And I'm going to read that text, and then we will pray. Our message this afternoon is love, law, and light. And those concepts all come together, as we'll see. Romans 13, 8 through 14. These are the words of God. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We, th- we are uh, filled um, with joy today. It is the Lord's day. We are filled with gratitude for it. And, and I ask and pray that your spirit would challenge us today as we seek to learn and apply what you have given us through your servant, Paul. Would you open our minds and our hearts so that we might receive your grace. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. Well, last week we saw how Paul shifted talking about internal church relations to talking about church and state relations. And this week he's going to come back in chiastic form. The Bible often has a chiasm to it. He starts with a topic, kind of goes this way with it, and then comes back. But in chiastic form, he starts to talk about community relations again and how we're supposed to treat each other and also treat our neighbor. And you recall that many times in the book of Romans, the apostle grounds his exhortations in these deep, deep and abiding truths about who Jesus is, Jesus being the second Adam. So in his mind, he has two particular characters that stand out. There are two people that stand out, Adam and Jesus. Adam and Jesus. The first Adam, the second Adam. We have King Adam the first, and then we have King Adam the second. So in, in comparing these two covenantal figureheads, Paul sees the resurrection of Jesus, the second Adam, as being something that far surpasses the work of the original Adam. So he keeps coming back to this Adam idea. He does it in 1 Corinthians 15, and he does it a lot. But we have the damage of the first Adam, but then the the second Adam and his resurrection undoes all of that. And so he has a whole lot more to say, um, as we'll see in a minute. But back in chapter 5, he makes this comparison where Paul... He sees the death that Adam brought as being supplanted by the life that Jesus has brought. So, but more than simply comparing these, these two covenantal heads and their respective work, more than just what Adam did, what Jesus did, there's something else going on with it. Something covenantal, something about the time, or something about the aeon, the age, if you will, that each has brought. So yes, Adam brought death, Jesus brought resurrection life. We know that. That's a a very basic concept. But something more is going on. Namely, Adam brought forth the darkness of sin during the Old Testament economy. 
And Jesus, thanks to his death and resurrection, he brought light, resurrection light, into the New Testament economy. So it's not just what each of those two guys did, Adam and Jesus, but it's what happened as a result of what they did. What happened in history? What happened in time based upon each of their works? And something that marks this new, new phase of history, this new phase of resurrection light, something that marks that history is love. That's the thing Paul talks about. Love is a very popular word in our day. We, people like to throw it around. Just love each other. Just like, oh, we just need to get together and love. And this, but it goes undefined largely. But love, we know, is the fulfilling of the law of God. So let's consider our passage. I'm going to just walk through it, make some exegetical comments, and then we'll draw some conclusions. So Paul writes in verse 8, he says, Owe no one anything, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The word love is agapon. It's also, you also have agapon. Agape, there's different, obviously, uh, in Greek, there's different tenses of it in different forms. But here, this word is actually emphasizing grace and mercy, a love that is gracious, a love that is merciful. And it's connected, of course, to God and his law. A love is a law. Grace is a law. Mercy is a law from God. So instead of the dehumanization that is idolatry that we saw all the way back in Romans 1, we are called to fulfill the Torah differently through loving each other. To love each other is to express what God has called us to do in his law. And Paul mentions the concept of debt. The Bible says a lot about debt. It's not always a good thing. The, the debtor is a slave to the lender. There's a lot of, you know, in the law of God, there was provision to lend to those who were poor without interest and those sorts of things. Um, and debts were discharged, we know, with the Jubilee year and so on and so forth. But here, this concept of, of debt, he's already talked about it, even all the way back in Romans 1. He says that he is obligated to bring the gospel to the nations, to the world. He's indebted to that task. He, he's already used this word before, and then he used it in chapter 8, verse 12, and he says that we are obligated. By the way, obligation implies indebtedness. We are obligated to live by the Spirit and not the flesh. So you who name the name of Christ today have an obligation to live by the Spirit and not the flesh. And here we have a debt that can never be discharged. This is a debt that can never be repaid. It's never expunged from your record. And that debt that you can never get out of is the debt that you have to love each other. Now we may owe other debts and we may eventually pay them off. But unlike a credit card or a car payment... We never pay off the obligation to love one another. You never outgrow your requirement to love according to the law of God. More on that later. Verse 9 and 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everything's summed up in that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So the, Paul says the purpose of the Torah, the law, the namos, the law, is it wasn't to be a ladder on which you ascend to the heavens by your good works. 
Um, certainly that was an abuse of the law, but that's not what it was ever meant to be. Instead, it was meant, as we've said repeatedly in Romans, it was meant to be a way of life. A way of life that demonstrated the inward grace of God that you've received by streaming outward and flowing out of you into a love of, of neighbor. So Torah, law, is something we're supposed to, to practice. Torah is to be practiced. It's something you do. It's a tool in your toolkit that you're supposed to do and use as you live your life. So it's not about your intentions. It's not about your feelings. More on that later. But it's about the practice of love, the practice of doing good to others. So here he says that all the commandments are, in fact, summed up in the simple command to love. Notice that Paul, Paul has just talked about the civil magistrate's job to punish evil and reward good and uh, praise good, um, which, you know, we covered that last week at, at, the, uh, at the park. But notice that he's just talked about that. And then here he says something very simple and basic. Love doesn't wrong a neighbor. Love doesn't wrong a neighbor. If it wrongs a neighbor or defrauds a neighbor, it's not love. And in fact, to make the connection here, uh, if some sort of defrauding happens or a contractual agreement is broken or some sort of restitution is necessary, that's when the magistrate's supposed to step in. Uh, any other time, we're just supposed to not ever hear about them or care what they think, unless they're administering justice according to the law of God. So he's, he's shifted from that, though, to talk about interpersonal relationships, the, practices, the practice of love. So the entire passage is essentially echoing the law of God itself and what it should look like, whether we're talking about a magistrate or basic human function in interpersonal relationships. Love does no wrong. Because love is to be anchored in the law of God, and it is anchored in the law of God. What is good? What is true? What is right? How do you know what is good, what is true, and what is right? You go back to the Torah, the law. And as such, we need to emphasize that simply not doing wrong isn't enough. Simply not doing wrong is not enough. You may not have struck your neighbor's car window with a baseball bat, but that doesn't mean you've loved him or her. Rather, love seeks the highest good of the other. That's what Thomas Aquinas is uh, well known for have said. Love seeks the good of the other. So if we're seeking the positive aspects of the law, think of you know, the Ten Commandments and do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. Those are the ne- what we call the negative aspects of the law. But what are the positive aspects of the law? Well, like protecting life, defending your neighbor, defending your family, so on. That's the protecting of life. And, for example, when it says, thou shalt not commit adultery, well, what's the positive thing? Well, cherishing your marriage, cherishing your spouse and the relationship you've had. So if we're seeking those positive aspects of the law, then naturally the negatives will not be done. If you're busy seeking the positive aspects of the law, obviously you're not going to wrong your neighbor, at least according to God's eyes, depending on his pagan system, you might be wronging him. But love, as we've said, love is not love. Love is law. Look at verse 11 through 12a, the first part of 12. Paul says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Oh, no, the Apostle Paul is talking about being woke. Run for the hills. 
The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Uh, Cody read from Ephesians 5. He quotes, awake, O sleeper. There is a concept of being awake, and what does that mean? He says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Now I want to explain this because it's a difficult passage, but I, I think I can help with it. Because Christ was raised from the dead, there is a new working paradigm for history. Don't miss that. Because Christ is raised from the dead, there's a new working paradigm for all of history. Everything from that morning when Christ was risen, everything from there, there's something that's different. Paul says that sleepiness is to be put away. It's morning time, so get up, get dressed, have your coffee if you need it, or don't if you don't want it, and be prepared for the day. What is Paul talking about? Remember what Paul's doing. He's writing a letter to the first century Roman Christians. So Paul and the Romans to whom he was writing to were living in a time of great societal upheaval. Things were disheveled all up and down. Politics were in flux. Uh, They were always headed in a bad direction during this time. The Jews were quarreling with the Romans, which, of course, led to the Jewish revolt, which started in 66 through 70 A.D., by the time of August 80, 70, the Rome was, uh, had burned Jerusalem and the temple to the ground. It was a smoldering heap. Millions were dead. It was an absolute mess, to, to say the least. But as we understand the Olivet Discourse, think of um, you know, Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew tells us the same thing. But as we understand the Olivet Discourse, Jesus wasn't predicting his second coming. That's where the atheist Bertrand Russell was wrong. And a lot of atheists have been wrong. Jesus said he was coming back within a generation, and you guys don't believe him. Well, he did in a generation. He made his presence known. Um, That's the Greek word parousia, presence. He was present there for the destruction of Jerusalem as he was judicially supervising its destruction. Um, That's how we should understand the Olivet Discourse. So he wasn't predicting his second coming. He wasn't predicting even the final judgment. He was talking about his coming or his presence in judgment against Israel. And of course, he would use Rome to do just that. So here, Paul and the Roman Christians, they were standing in the in-between. So think of it, think of it this way. The old age, the age of darkness, the, the night is far gone, he says here, was coming to a close. And it would be closed and it would shut completely in AD 70 when the tr- temple was detro- destroyed. So the old Judaic aeon was over in AD 70. It was gone. But before that, 40 years, a generation before 70 AD, you had the resurrection of of Christ. Jesus was murdered on a Roman cross, but was raised from the dead in resurrection power three days later. So in AD 30, something started. In AD 70, something ended. So this incarnate word had become the resurrected incarnate word. And as a result of that, the great sunrise had taken place. Malachi 4.2 talks about this sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness had dawned. That was what happened Easter morning, resurrection morning. So these these two ages, the old age, the old age of Adam, and the new age of the second Adam, for 40 years overlapped. Jesus launched his new creation project on Resurrection Sunday, and yet the old age still needed to be put away. It needed to be put to rest. So that's when the New Testament, you go to places like Hebrews 1, and it talks about in these last days. 
the Dispies get all excited about that because especially the past couple of years, the Rapture Index is through the roof. It's coming, baby. We're going to get zapped off this planet. And it's just nonsense. When the New Testament says last days, we, we take it actually more literal than the Dispies do because we literally the last days of the Old Covenant were coming to an end. So when you read that phrase in these last days, just know they're all waiting for this huge shift. Adam to 70 AD, Christ at 30 AD onwards. The overlap is what Paul is emphasizing here. So the new creation age has begun. It was still at war with the old age, the old heavens and old earth, which is why he speaks of it being at hand. So the fullness of the new creation, what we call the new heavens and the new earth, would be unleashed even further after the old darkness was put away. That seems to be what he's saying here. Look at verse 12 again, the second part, and 13. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. See, in light of this, Paul says to stop joining forces with the darkness. Not to sound like too Star Wars-y, but don't join the dark side, okay? These nighttime behaviors, he says, are to be put away. That's not our age. That's not the age we live in. That's not our responsibility. Those are not things that we do. Human history from Adam to 70 AD was marked by disorder, marked by chaos, marked by death and sin. So that's not our age. That's not where we belong, he says. So don't do those things. Instead, you need the new armor that we have in this new age, as we'll see as Christ himself. Look at verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Like clothing, we're to take off the dirty clothes of unrighteousness, the dirty clothes of the old age, and put on clean clothes, the clothes of Jesus Christ. There are no loopholes. There are no respectable sins we can tag along with, take them with us into this grand new age. There's no, none of that. There, there, there's no shortcuts. Paul says literally don't even think. Don't even think about it. Don't think about gratifying these corrupt lusts and desires. Don't just not do them. Don't even entertain them. And he says that in Ephesians 5, which is why I had Cody read that passage. Because he says it's, it's, it's disgusting to even speak of those things. Why even speak of them? Why even entertain it? Don't, don't even let it come into your mind. You're, don't just not do the things that he's just said. Don't even, don't even fixate on them. So Jesus is our weapon of light, he says. So be a disciplined person. Jesus is the clothing that we're supposed to wear. So know that Christ is with you. Act like it. Now, let's pull out a few things from this. <clears throat> the convergence of love, law, and light here is, in this passage, is not by accident. Paul's pulling these themes together. Love, law, light, they're all coming together. And in a sense, it's really where the letter has been headed all along. Romans is actually a fundraising letter. Here, have some systematic theology in the middle of it. But it, he's raising funds for the Christians back in Jerusalem. But Paul wants us to understand here the genuine self-sacrifice. Genuine self-sacrifice. The very thing that Jesus has done is ours to fulfill too. So that's our calling. That's our job too. 
To love someone is not measured by subjective feelings. It's not by convenience, right? We conditionalize our love towards others sometimes. Well, it's not very convenient for me to do this. I'd rather just stay home or I'd rather, you know, do my own thing. It's not also certainly to be defined by our own subjective terms or redefining terms. Well, I know this is what the Bible calls me to do in loving them, but is it, is it really though? <laughs> is that really what I should be doing? See, to love someone, to truly love someone is to be lawful towards them, to treat them lawfully. It's not as though we have rights and therefore we can withhold love from time to time, depending on our whims. No, it's that we have duties and responsibilities. We have a calling that's been set before us, which if we forego that calling to love one another, the way he's called, if we do that, it leads us into the territory of sin immediately. So Paul says at the very outset of Romans, chapter 1, verse 17, he said, the just shall live by faith. And this entire time, he's been telling us what that looks like. The just shall live by faith. How does that play out? Read the entire letter of Romans, the entire book. Those who are just live inside the realm of justice. They've been brought into it. So the life of the just and the life of the righteous is one that looks like lawful love expending our energies in service of the other. So, so we cannot separate, by the way, this is important. We cannot separate law and love any more than we can separate the sun rays from the sun. You can't separate them at all. To, to see one is to see the other, is essentially the point. They are inseparable in the very person of God. You don't have, you know, the father's more like law and the son's more like love. You can't separate those things out in the very Godhead that we worship, which means for us they're inseparable as well. But just because we owe that debt to everyone and can never pay it off doesn't mean that we ever get to throw our hands in the air and say, well, the demand is just too much. I know I owe this debt to them. I'm indebted to them to love them, but it's too much. I can't possibly do it. I've been loving everyone else. I can't in this moment love them. How could I possibly add that to my plate? We don't, we don't have the privilege to, of doing that. Some treat relationships like they do that racked up credit card. Might as well go bankrupt at this point. It's so bad, I might as well just go that route, right? And alas, some of you may have relationships that have been bankrupt for years, and this is because you stopped paying on the principal. Now, notice that Paul connects the ethic of law and love to the time of the day. He starts talking about the time, sunrise and nighttime. And he connects these ideas to, to the time of day. The hour has come, he says, for us to wake from our sleep. The salvation which he speaks of here isn't the salvation of souls in heaven, nor is it the second coming of Jesus. When he says that our salvation is near, he's talking to them in the first century, and it's their deliverance. It's quite literally the deliverance of the first century Christians who were being delivered from the darkness, the dark old covenant age. So I don't take this to mean it's the second coming. When he says our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed, he's talking about being delivered from the old age. AD 70 was coming to an end. Now, certainly the political atmosphere at this time was rife with all sorts of disturbances, and many Christians... Many Christians in the first century were actually delivered from Roman and Jewish persecution. 
That's what salvation really means, is deliverance, ultimately. But clearly the salvation, Paul says here, has to do with the sunshine of the new creation. See, the day, that is, the day when the old covenant is completely gone and thus gives way to the new reality of Christ's lordship, is at hand. It's right on top of these Christians. So the imminence here, the imminence language, is not the second coming of Christ or the final coming, we might call it, but the passing away, the darkness. The darkness was coming to an end. You see, the lesson here, part of the lesson, (laughs) is that Christians are supposed to be time tellers. We need to have the ability to tell time. Christianity is a religion of history, of, of victorious covenantal history, and that's why the calendar itself is actually Christian. The calendar itself is Christian. We mark out history, B.C., before Christ, or A.D., Anno Domini, that's the year of our Lord. We literally tell time because of Christ. And Paul tells us that we need to learn how to discern the times to understand where we are in history and where God intends to take that history. And as such, we are to act a certain way about it. Now remember, he's talking to Christians here. Learn to tell the time. Guess how you tell the time? Cast off the works of darkness. Christians must cast off the works of darkness to repudiate them and to get rid of them. Repent of doing the bad deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, he says. Uh, referring back to Hebrew, or excuse me, Ephesians 5.8, Paul says there, for at one time you were in darkness. Talking to Christians, at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. You were in the old age, but you're not anymore. Christ is risen. You've confessed him as Lord. You're not in that anymore. So walk as children of light. See, we have a twofold responsibility. One, do not walk a certain way. And two, walk a certain way. Or put it another way, put off something, put on something. And what Paul wants the first century Christians to do is pay attention to the times. Pay attention to the times. The old way was going away. The old things of Adam were about to be put away for good. The old scaffolding would come down in A.D. 70. And the new edifice of the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, the church, is now here. And so we have to walk in this manner. We have to walk in this manner as though it was true, because it is true. Christian theology is unique in that it requires us to persist in things as though it were true, because it is true. All the time, the indicatives and the imperatives. We're commanded, the imperative commanded to do something based on the indicative, based on the truth that something is is true. So it's true that you died with Christ, you were buried with Christ, you were raised with Christ. It's true that you too are now seated with him in the heavenly places. So act like it, he says. Act like you're forgiven because you are forgiven. A lot of Christians struggle with this, with the guilt thing. Act like you're forgiven because you are. You are, and you can actually believe it. Act like you are a part of a new creature in this new creation, in this new creation age. Act like that. Why? Because you are. Far too much of Christianity these days, especially, bless their hearts, the Southern fundamentalist, <laughs> sort of KJV only, um, you better not be doing this, better not be playing cards. This, this whole thing where Christianity is built around this idea of don't do certain things. Now, 
Certainly Paul says that there are things that we ought not to do because they are, in fact, dark. <laughs> he does say not to do certain things. But they don't, you know, they belong to the old way of doing things. But the difference, the difference isn't, well, Jesus is alive, so now you have a better shot of not doing bad things. It's not that. Rather, it's the indwelling power of Christ through his Holy Spirit now resides in you. And as God's new creation temple people, you've been given everything you need. But not only everything you need, everything the world needs. You've been given everything you need to go make sure that everyone else is up and out of bed and get the beard shaved, get ready for the day. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And really, that's the issue here. Paul, Paul was telling him, all right, guys, it's 5 a.m., Get her, get, pay attention. The daybreak's coming through. Christ is raised. It's early. Get up. Look at the dawn. It, and it was dawning in that first century. It didn't look like a glorious thing. Christ was raised, spent time with his disciples, went back to the throne, David's throne in heaven where he rules and reigns over the nations. Now what? The disciples had to go and hide. They actually hid and waited because Jesus said to wait till power comes on high. It was a dark time. But then the flicker of Pentecost happened. Things were changing. See, the light had broken through on this cold, dark earth that Easter morning. But it was still early. The old age needed to pass away, which is what happened in AD 70. But fast forward to our time. What time is it right now? Not actually, don't look at a clock. What time is it? Now, in history, what time is it? Perhaps it's noon. Maybe it's 9 o'clock in history, and we still have a whole lot more sunshine to go in history. Maybe it's the afternoon. I don't know, but either way, the darkness is gone. The darkness is gone. Jesus is alive. The problem that we face is that too many people are sleeping past breakfast and into lunchtime. Evangelism and our work in the Great Commission is the job of the rooster crow wake up get out of bed jesus is alive the sun is shining and we have to tell everybody else about it so act like that's true because it is true a couple final thoughts here on, on resurrection sunday god's new world had launched this was the sunrise of the new christian order and something christians need to remember is that to quote a book title it was the day the revolution had begun it was the day the revolution had begun. When the incarnate word became the resurrected incarnate word, the new world had been birthed. And we don't have to apologize for that either. Stop telling everybody you're sorry that Jesus is Lord. If you could just accept him into your heart, could you do that today as you knock on the door and make it awkward? You don't have to apologize for that. We don't have to make Jesus Lord anymore that we have to wait, make sure that the sun comes up every morning. Whether you're a heliocentrist or, like myself, more of a geocentrist type of guy, uh, it doesn't matter for this point. The point is, the sun is in the sky, the Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead, and our job is to take that message into the world and tell people, look, here's the truth, deal with this truth. You have to deal with the fact that Christ is risen. So preaching, then, in our evangelism and all of these things in our discipleship is waking people up from their slumber. We are sounding the alarm here in Fauquier County. And uh, we may need to have Chris agitate the local newspaper. 
a warranted declaration. You didn't even know. This is in your own backyard. You haven't even covered it yet. What's your problem? We are sounding the alarm in Fauquier County, letting everyone know, look, it's time to get out of bed, put off the clothes of unrighteousness, and insist on putting on the armor of light. That is Jesus Christ himself. And it is here. It is here in this covenant life where justice and righteousness and beauty and goodness and all of those things reside. And so we get to say, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son, that he is ours to behold. And I pray that we would do that, that we would behold the Lord Jesus Christ each day and be shaped by him, molded by him, mature in him, to grow up into him. Father, help us not to entertain the old clothes of unrighteousness, the old, the old clothes of Adam, but instead put on the new light, the new clothes of Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would equip us to announce the dawn of a new Christian world. And we pray, Lord, as history continues, that, Father, whatever you would want to do with us here as a, as a small community here trying to affect change and and see righteousness prevail uh, we are your servants and we are here so here we are send us we ask this in christ's name amen